politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Banner. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 FM, KPFK in Los Angeles, streaming for the world at kpfk.org. Thanks so much for being with us today. This is a special program today since every week we are about some aspect of the study of consciousness and learning to raise consciousness or to expand awareness and to look at all the qualities of consciousness that often are not attributed to the nature of what it means to be sentient or aware or alert, such as a set of exalted values and ethics, morality that is inherent in higher consciousness. Also, the nature of attention, mindfulness, intention, volition, learning to substitute even-tempered, well-reasoned responses for knee-jerk reactions. How about that? Not to mention recognizing our emotions as responses, not something that someone did to you, and taking ownership of that emotional response such that you can learn about yourself instead of obsess on the stimulus, whoever or whatever caused you to feel the way you do. These are just some of the things that we talk about when we discuss the nature of consciousness. But this week, this week we have a very special guest. He is the chairman of the Department of Consciousness Studies at the University of Arizona in Tucson. Now, I'll bet you didn't even know there was such a thing as departments of consciousness study at various universities. It's a fairly new phenomenon, as is the conference that's coming up next week and that we're going to talk about today. This one in Tucson, it's a biannual conference called the Science of Consciousness. It's held in even-numbered years, so that's this year in Tucson at a uh, Lowe's resort near the University of Arizona campus. And again, it's all next week, the 18th through the 22nd of April. You can attend this conference either in person or, more likely, online. So it's a hybrid conference, in person, in this resort outside Tucson, or online. And uh, the, the speakers throughout the week and the panels and the debates, and there's even some uh, slam poetry and uh, a lecture by a ayahuasca shaman, as well as anesthesiologists who are studying where consciousness goes when we're anesthetized. And it's just this wide-ranging overview of the nature of consciousness from, from quantum physics to metaphysics from mysticism to empirical science. And the chairman of the department and the director of the conference, Dr. Stuart Hameroff, is our guest today. So we're going to bring him on. And I want to give him as much time as possible 
So we're going to do a quick break right up front, and then we'll go into two longer segments that'll take us right through the hour to uh, to 2 o'clock. All right? So stay tuned. The Science of Consciousness, we'll be talking about what is it, where does it come from, Are plants conscious? Is the mineral kingdom conscious? And if we're studying consciousness in the context of anesthetics, what about psychedelics? Yep, we'll be talking about that too with Dr. Hameroff. So stay with us. This is The Ageless Wisdom on 90.7 FM, KPFK in Los Angeles. Hi, I'm Laura Flanders. I host a radio show called The Laura Flanders Show, where, as we say, the people who say it can't be done take a back seat to the people who are doing it. At KPFK, we believe in free speech, independent thought, and universal equality, but it isn't free. We bring you information without corporate influence, political spin, or government funding. We give a voice to the voiceless, or at least those whose voices are never heard on other stations. The Laura Flanders Show is all about people making change and connecting with each other. Keep Community Connected Radio alive by making a tax-deductible contribution today at kpfk.org. That's the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on your radio at 90.7 FM for all of Southern California, from Santa Barbara to San Diego, from the sea to the desert, and... uh, of course, we stream for the world at kpfk.org. This program is also podcast and uh, even posted to YouTube. But we're always pleased when you can join us live Tuesday afternoons at 1 o'clock. As our intro says, this is a program about consciousness. That's, a, of course, a huge field and somewhat difficult to describe. We could call it self-awareness, about uh, understanding, but there's so much more to consciousness. There's intention and attention, and I think even some inherent ethics and uh, values that go along with being ever more aware, ever more awake. And there's a conference coming up in Tucson, Arizona, called the Science of Consciousness that I want you to know about. Because whether you're able to attend in person or online, uh, this is a uh, very important conference, the Science of Consciousness. It happens every other year at the University of Arizona in Tucson. Beautiful city, as I'm sure you know. And we're fortunate to have the, uh, I'm not sure I have the title, the director or the chairman of the conference, Dr. Stuart Emerald, with us today on uh, KPFK, and Dr. Stewart, good afternoon, and welcome to the radio. Well, thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. It's good to see you. Your interest in consciousness led you to become a medical doctor and an anesthesiologist. Is that right? Yes. Uh, in undergraduate school, I, uh, I took a little philosophy of mind as well as mostly sciences and got interested in consciousness. And in medical school, I gravitated towards, uh, you know, neuroscience, uh, psychiatry, neurology, neurosurgery, but uh, none of those really grabbed me. And I spent a research elective uh, in a lab in medical school studying cell division and got interested in uh, these structures called microtubules, which process information to organize the uh, cell division, pull apart the chromosomes perfectly. 
And while everybody else in the lab got interested in the chromosomes and genetics, I got interested in how these structures uh, seem to know where to go and what to do and how to organize things so perfectly. And their structure had become known at that time, and they looked like lattices, kind of like computers, which were new to me. And I got the idea that they might have something to do with uh, processing information <clears throat> relevant to consciousness in neurons. And uh, so I just uh, kind of got that idea that I could never get rid of. And uh, I subsequently went into anesthesia to try to figure out how anesthesia works to erase consciousness. So these microtubulars exist only in neurons, brain cells? They exist in all cells, actually, all animal cells in various forms. But in neurons are in unique uh, arrangements and very prevalent uh, in all other cells, they're kind of like spokes of a wheel or radiating in all the same direction. But in, in neurons, in the, the dendrites and cell bodies, they're broken, interrupted, and, and mixed polarity. So one, uh, they have a, a, a plus and a minus end, and they're arranged so that the, the, the plus ends are uh, next to the minus ends of their neighbors for some kind of strange reason that nobody's ever uh, figured out, although... We think it's to encourage and cause resonance and interference. It's kind of a hologram uh, to protect consciousness. But the point is that uh, I think, and, and my colleagues and I think, that consciousness is coming from a deeper level in these microtubules inside neurons. The consciousness springs, well, this, this is the big question, of course. This is the debate. Is consciousness an epiphenomena of brain chemistry or... Does it pre-exist, and does it come through the mind or through the brain? So where do you come down on that? Well, it's a key question. Did, which came first, consciousness or life even in the, in the course of the universe? And most neuroscientists and philosophers would say that uh, life, life uh, happened, life evolved, and at some critical point of complexity, for example, in a brain, consciousness emerged and then kind of took over or think it took over uh, our control of things. But if you're a panpsychist or a spiritualist or believe in, in objective reduction as, uh, as the cause of consciousness, then it was there first. And I think actually that consciousness or even very simple proto-consciousness uh, that could give rise to pleasure, for example, was the spark of life and actually prompted its origin. Uh, back in the primordial soup or wherever consciousness uh, first arose, and that these uh, simple uh, uh, organic uh, molecules started having uh, little conscious moments, according to a theory put forth by, by Roger Penrose. Right? He put forth a theory of, of why they would be conscious, and I suggested they could happen in the primordial soup, and it was uh, primitive uh, pleasure that drove uh, these molecules to self-organize and eventually evolve. I mean, it doesn't make sense that life started from simple molecules with no genes and went millions of years uh, to get to simple, simple organisms and then on from there without any, any motivation, without any uh, reason. Uh, Dawkins says it's uh, to promote survival of the gene, but the gene doesn't feel as far as we can know. But I think feelings were there right from the beginning and prompted the origin of life and it sparked its evolution. I mean, if you go to any laboratory... Uh, looking at animal behavior or even human behavior, it's all driven in some way by, by pleasure or reward or avoidance of this, this pleasure, not 
necessarily just hedonism, but also altruism and spiritual pleasure and that sort of thing. So I think consciousness was there first and actually promoted or prompted the origin of life way back when. Well, it's wonderful to hear an empirical scientist suggest such a thing. So <laughs> thank you for that. Uh, but it doesn't mean it's a settled issue. This is just all still so wonderfully fascinating. And I've already confessed to you before we begin uh, the interview, my fascination, my obsession with attempting to understand consciousness. And uh, it seems the more insight I gain, the less I really know about it. Yeah. I want to ask you about the phenomenon that I've read about. And uh, actually, I saw a video of, um, let's see, what was it? It was some kind of slime mold that was uh, in an experiment solving the shortest path to food problem in some microscopic maze, suggesting that this slime mold had awareness, that it, it could learn, it could recall, it could understand on some extremely simple level, yeah. where is the food and what's the easiest way to get there. Now, that's a single-cell life form. Uh, are amoeba and, and paramecium, are, they, are these tiny little critters aware of themselves? I think they may be. But the key question is whether uh, they, they have feelings at all, whether they're self-aware or just aware or, or have some notion of something tastes good to eat or, uh, or uh, something is dangerous, run away. Uh, both those instances, the, the slime mold, which is a, a giant amoeba, kind of oozes in all different directions. And it oozes because its microtubules, which we mentioned before, will point in a particular direction, and then the actin flows toward it and it engulfs whatever it wants to eat or engulf. And a, a paramecium is a little bit different. It has these, uh, it's also driven by microtubules, which stick out in stuff, things called cilia, which act as both sensors and oars and swim around quite nimbly to find uh, food, to avoid obstacles, find a mate, to have sex. This paramecium actually, two paramecium fuse during sex and are quite still, and uh, and they have very clever behavior. They, they don't like being threatened, and they like food, and they like sex, and they can learn. Uh, if you suck them into a capillary tube, they get out faster and faster each time. Now, this is a problem for most theorists because most theorists, as I mentioned before, would say that consciousness and even cognition, even learning that need not be conscious, can uh, happens uh by the brain or a system acting like a computer, a complex computer of simple neurons, that the neurons are simply one or zero, like in a computer, bit states, on or off. And if you put enough of these in the right arrangement, you get computation, you get clever behavior, and eventually you get consciousness. Well, um, that would require a whole bunch of amoeba hooked up in a big network, or a whole bunch of paramecium. And yet there's only one. They don't, they're not part of a network. And they accomplish their cognition and consciousness, if they have it, um, through their, their microtubules, which are the same structures. And by the way, I would say that I think they probably are, but consciousness is kind of like a, is a spectrum, kind of like photons. There's high frequency and low frequency, and depending on the development of the organism, uh, people like us, uh, with a lot of 
microtubules, for example, are having, say, 10 million conscious moments per second of high complexity and high intensity, whereas a, a paramecium or an amoeba might be just having two or three per minute, something very slow. Even a plant might have one or two per minute. Uh, to them, it's real. It's, it's a feeling, but it's not as content-laden, and it's, it's not as intense. And uh, there's kind of gaps in between. So I think all creatures may have some degree of consciousness. Uh, all creatures with microtubules, which is pretty much all creatures, but just at a much slower, less intense, less experiential nature. But that would explain their behavior, uh, why uh, simple organisms go for food or plants follow the sun. It's to uh, enrich, you know, get more energy, but also because some way it feels good, I think. And I think feelings and proto-conscious feelings are at the, the heart of all this. Wow. Uh, why does a plant follow this? I mean, we could answer it on one level. It wants to survive. But why does a plant reach for the sun and follow it across the sky and pose up at night? Yeah, that's a good question. And actually, we, well, there's a workshop at our conference uh, by Bruce McIver from Stanford and Rajneesh Khanna, uh, who's in a, a private firm in the, in the Bay Area, uh, dealing with plants, and they're studying plants. And Bruce is, is an anesthetic mechanism researcher, and uh, they're exactly looking at that kind of stuff of, of the mechanism of phototropism, where the plant, the sunflower follows the sun, or the Venus flytrap grabs the, the fly. And uh, believe it or not, they're finding, or at least they're testing the question whether it's the microtubules that are mediating this behavior, including uh, the, uh, following the sun and, and other uh, behavior. So they're they're trying to you can anesthetize these plants, uh, plants in general, so they don't follow the sun, they don't respond to the fly, and so they're trying to uh, figure out if that's mediated by <clears throat> microtubules, which are becoming a valid uh, uh, candidate for the mechanism of anesthesia in our brains as well as uh, an animals and plants. Back in the late '60s or early 1970s, there was a book. Uh, by a fellow named Cleve Baxter called The Secret Life of Plants. Yeah, I read it. Uh, he was a polygraph expert, I think. That's how he got into measuring these the responses of these plants. But what was your take on that, the idea that a plant is potentially aware of the attitudes of its keeper, that if we're nice to our plants <laughs> and, and love them like they're puppy dogs or kittens, they'll do better than if we uh, are apathetic or mean to them. Well, my wife takes wonderful care of our plants because she feels that way. But I have to say that it doesn't necessarily mean they're conscious. You can have behavior without consciousness. And uh, not to throw a wet blanket on all, all this, but uh, uh, Chalmers has raised the question of uh, zombies, philosophical zombies, that people who look and act like they're conscious, like you and me, could actually be cleverly programmed to talk about conscious without consciousness without actually having it, and we would be what philosophers call zombies. And the question is whether zombies are actually possible. Is it, is it possible to have essentially an identical brain and be conscious or not conscious? And I, I think the difference is uh, what uh, it, most uh, scientists and philosophers look only at the surface of the neuron without going to a deeper level into the microtubules where you get into the interesting quantum effects which tie things together and entangle you and connect the universe. So um, I think consciousness is, is very basic. 
Oh, indeed. Let's go back to the paramecium. I think most of us remember from high school, uh, these were the little creatures that were entertaining us in the microscope. And we remember the the cilia. Uh, they remind me of a, a centipede or a millipede. And you're saying it's in these little legs, these little hair fibers. Right. Which uh, we have throughout our body, in our lungs, uh, in our GI tract. And in all cells, because the same structures make up what are called centrioles, which control the cell division. And and one uh, one of these centrioles is the same structure as cilia, and in neurons, pro- actually protrudes through the uh, its membrane cover, but it sticks out of the cell body like an antenna, which may be detecting photons. There's a lot of information now that there there's photons, light in the in the brain, and. Uh, you know whether it's it's uh, 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 metabolic byproducts of chemical reactions, which a lot of people say, or whether it's actually being used for communication, like some kind of quantum quantum optical device. And we've been doing experiments that suggest that uh, there are quantum optical effects in microtubules that are inhibited by anesthesia, and we think that might be a candidate for how anesthesia works. I'm anxious to talk to you about anesthesia too, but. Um... Here's where I'm headed. If the slime mold is conscious of itself in some way, on some level, or to some degree, does that mean that neurons and perhaps other cells, skin cells, bone cells, blood cells, T cells, also have some degree of awareness of themselves existing? I think that, um, and the the gut... uh, uh, microbiome too. My wife always reminds me. But I think in the, in the brain. Uh, so go back to consciousness is a, uh, a a collapse of the wave function that involves a certain amount of mass and superposition. I'm, I'm kind of jumping ahead here. So yes, you could have uh, localized the bits of consciousness in all these cells, or even in the table, or even in air molecules. But they would be random and proto-conscious. They wouldn't, uh, they, they wouldn't have any memory. They wouldn't have any context. They wouldn't have any meaning, I would say. So only in the brain, or, or more in the brain than anywhere else, are the, the uh, microtubules and the quantum states organized and tangled and orchestrated. So they're communicating with each other. So we have a, a complex scene rather than little bits and bits of unco- un- unconnected uh, qualia and feelings, which is, I think, what it would be like to be uh, something like a, a piece of wood or, or I mean, pan, neuroscientists re- resort to panpsychism because they can't explain consciousness. But when you get to, they, so there's there's some consciousness with every atom, with every molecule. The problem with that is that they don't connect. They're not I- interconnected. So you have little disconnected moments here, there, and everywhere, which don't amount to anything. But in a quantum system, they entangle, they become one and unified. So that I get a, a a unified, coherent image of you that I'm looking at it, at my computer screen right now, and you of me, and and everything is in, integrated or better yet orchestrated into a unified uh, conscious experience, rather than uh, like in the cells you mentioned, they all might have their own little uh, bits of awareness that don't amount to anything because they don't talk to each other. So that sort of answers my next question: uh, Does uh, collectively speaking, the cells that comprise our heart, are they aware of themselves as a heart as opposed to the lung with the kidneys? 
uh, the heart beats itself. It doesn't rely on a signal from the brain. There's a, as you know, there's a node in the heart that tells it to beat. Yeah. Uh, the SA node and the AV node, and, and there are there is quite a collection of neurons in the heart actually. And I remember uh, I used to do cardiac anesthesia. I don't do it any longer, but uh, we did a lot of heart transplants uh, back in the day. And uh, well, we still do, but it, but I'm not involved in. And there was some the, the cardiac surgeons were looking at uh, this is all very hush hush, but memory from uh, a donor uh, transmitted to a receiver of a heart. And the family of, of the uh, of the receiver of the of the heart transplant would say, "Well, he or she is doing such and such that he or she never did before." And uh, you know, is it possible that the, the donor loved to dance or loved to do this or that or the other? And uh, they did find some very interesting things. And it could be that memory is, uh, you know, we we don't know where memory is stored. Still, people say it's in the synapses, but those proteins last hours to days, and yet memories last lifetimes. So, I think it's likely that the that the memories are in the microtubules, which are also in those neurons in the heart. So, it's possible that some memories are are transferred like that. Um, but uh, uh, that's kind of a, a touchy subject for a lot of reasons. <laughs> Let's go back to your wife's comment about the gut. There are neurons in. The gut, are there not? Yes, there are, and uh, but there's, and there's also all these bacteria that, that may, may communicate with them. Um, but um, yeah, there are neurons in in the gut, and they may be uh, uh, detecting uh, what these uh, uh, organisms are saying. And it's also possible to to treat the gut uh, uh, problems with the gut, uh, um, irritable bowel, and, and and stuff like that. We're looking at with. Uh, um, Treating with with vagal ultrasound, applying ultrasound to the the vagus nerve, which which innervates the whole gut, um, and their microtubules and all these neurons. But um, that's kind of a therapeutic uh, spin off of that. But um, yeah, there, there's ner- nerves everywhere. But um, if they're not entangled into one, they wouldn't necessarily part of be part of of one unified consciousness. They could be doing their own little thing, uh, as could inanimate objects for that matter. So they're not telepathic, is what you're saying. Well, they could be if they're entangled, but they'd have to have a. They'd have to, you know, like I. I think neurons in our own brain, from one part to the other, are telepathic. They have to communicate much faster than you could by neural transmission by sending a, a membrane potential down the axon or dendritic dendritic potentials. I think you need entanglement and coherence just for normal uh, function. Uh, you mentioned, uh, for example, ep- epiphenomenal. Uh, before the idea that uh, our actions are ac- we're not really in conscious control the consciousness is along for the ride and we are as, as Huxley said merely helpless spectators that's because uh, if you say something and uh, or you know, I see I see something and um, and the, the signal goes from my eyes to the thalamus to the back of my brain uh, to be one where it's it's not conscious then it goes forward to, to the front of the brain uh, where it picks up shape, color, motion, meaning, and then the front of the brain, it's broadcast throughout the brain. It's that third wave of broadcast that correlates with consciousness. And yet that doesn't happen until three to three to 500 milliseconds after the impulse hits my eyes. And yet I will respond, or everybody, not just me, responds within 100 milliseconds before that, that activity uh, occurs as far as we can measure it. And yet we've already responded 
So therefore, the the assumption in neuroscience and philosophy is that we act non-consciously, our autopilot, our inner zombie, if you will, response, and then a little later, our consciousness happens, and we we think we were in control when we really were. Now, that's the unfortunately that's the party line in neuroscience and philosophy, because when we do measure this activity, it seems to happen too late. However, there's a way around that, and there's actually evidence going back to the uh, 70s from Ben Libet's famous work about backward time referral in the brain. And uh, Roger Penrose and others, including uh, Yakira Haronov and, and others, have shown that you can have backward time referral with quantum collapse. So if there's a quantum mechanism in the brain, you can have this funny backward time referral, which means that we actually could be in conscious control in real time even though that electrical activity uh, lags behind. And this is a uh, hot topic of, of debate and stuff we talked about at our conference. In fact, we're going to have a, a session about that. And, and uh, uh, Daniel Sheehan and Roger Penrose and uh, Paul Davies will be in that session. And one of the topics will be whether this backward time effect can, can, can actually occur in the brain. And if so, uh, uh, give us uh, conscious control in real time rather than us being merely Epiphenomenal. I need to take a short break, Stuart, and then when we come back, I want to talk about anesthesia and where does consciousness go. Uh, most of us, I think, have probably had some experience with general anesthesia. And, um, of course, I also want to emphasize that the timing of you being on my show here today has to do with a conference coming up real soon, a couple of weeks here in uh, April in Tucson. We wanted to talk about that a little, too. My guest is Dr. Stuart Hameroff, and we're talking about consciousness. And, uh, wow, what a fascinating topic. And uh, stay exactly where you are. We'll be back after this short break. This is the Mystery School in KPFK. This is Lisa Gar inviting you to join me every Wednesday and Thursday at 1 o'clock for The Aware Show as we continue to bring you cutting-edge interviews about health, spirituality, and self-awareness. That's every Wednesday and Thursday, 1 o'clock on The Aware Show. APFK and your radio, this is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. Heard here at 90.7 FM every Tuesday afternoon at 1 o'clock. We're talking about consciousness. We're talking about awareness. My guest is Dr. Stuart Amarov from the University of Arizona in Tucson. And he's with us as the uh, chairman or director of a conference that's coming up in Tucson that is held every other year. Well, you were saying, uh, Stuart, every other year in Tucson, and then and the odd number of years, it, it floats around the world. Tell us a little about the conference. It started in 1994. I had been interested in consciousness, and uh, as were several of my colleagues at the University of Arizona. And, uh, you know, the topic of consciousness had been kind of banned from science during the first part of the 20th century by behaviorist psychology. Uh, they wanted to measure stuff, and they wanted to put psychology into uh, science, and you can't measure consciousness, so it became somewhat taboo. And uh, and 
But in the 80s, there were some uh, uh, prominent uh, people who wrote books about consciousness. Uh, Gerald Edelman, Nobel Prize winner, Francis Crick, Nobel Prize winner, and Roger Penrose, subsequent Nobel Prize winner, wrote uh, books that brought it into the public eye. And um, I thought the time was right for an interdisciplinary conference bringing all different approaches together. So I, I went to my, my friends and... Uh, uh, they agreed, and we organized the first conference in 1994 at the medical school in Tucson. Uh, we packed the auditorium of 350 people. There was no uh, email had just come out. It was mostly by faxes, and uh, it was uh, it was quite an event. And uh, we had one day for each uh, discipline, which was probably not a smart thing to do. But I wasn't going to do another one. I thought, well, that was that was great. Uh, hopefully, somebody else would. Um, but they couldn't agree on an interdisciplinary approach. So I said, okay, uh, we'll organize it again in two years because um, every year is too much work. But somebody, uh, a, a psychologist from Italy, uh, Chloe Tede Ferretti, wanted to uh, organize one with our name and uh, co-sponsorship. So we agreed, and we did the 1995 conference in Italy on the island of Ischia, uh, near Capri, and then in 96 went back to Tucson, 97 to Denmark, 98 back in Tucson, and 99 Japan, and so forth, and it's just gone on every other year in Tucson. During the pandemic, it was uh, online. This year, it's going to be uh, hybrid, uh, half, uh, uh, it can be online or in person. We have about 400 people coming in person, and I don't know how many uh, online, but it'll be a good-sized conference. Uh, so that's almost, you know, we, we get six, seven hundred people. Uh, we have gotten that many. And it's at a uh, beautiful eco resort in the mountains outside of Tucson and uh, uh, Los Fontana Canyon Resort. And we have a lot of parties and a lot of uh, social events, a lot of mixing and informal stuff going on. And uh, it's really a lot of fun. People keep coming back. So I uh, keep doing it. Get more people to help me. Come for the party, stay for the science. Yeah. Uh, do you think that, uh, I mean, is this only for uh, professionals, scientists, no, researchers? Do you not think? at all. Not at all. A lot of, uh, a lot of uh, personal uh, uh, inspect, introspectionists or uh, seekers, whatever you want to call them, or they call themselves, people just interested in the topic, uh, no matter what their, what their background, because they read or they follow it, and everybody has it. Not everybody, but people who come have a great interest. So, it brings together all kinds of people. And when we first set it up, uh, we, we had philosophy the first day, neuroscience, then uh, psychology, cognitive science, then fourth day was math, physics, and biology, and the fifth day was experiential approaches. And we subsequently figured out that it, that's not a good idea. You shouldn't segregate it because that just builds barriers. You want to integrate and have particular sessions on a particular topic that will have a, a, a neuroscientist and a philosopher and, and somebody experientialists all talking about the same topic so that's what we've evolved to over the years but initially that's how it was it was uh, more separate and we've developed the taxonomy and all these topics and how they interact over the years so uh, people who come every year are, are quite up on the latest uh, stuff and uh, uh, there's been a lot happening in recent years actually it's, it's accelerated quite a bit let's talk about the anesthesia experience uh when I was a boy, I had my appendix out, and uh, I mean, I'm sure medicine has changed enormously since 
the uh, this probably would have been the early 60s. And I remember being told in the OR to count backward from 100, and I got to about 94, and and uh, that was it. But I have recollection of that uh, a decade ago when I had uh, heart surgery. My memory ends with me being wheeled down the hall. I never even got to the OR. I mean, I, I obviously did, and at some point the anesthesia was administered, but also, there was a, a forgetting of the time that preceded the administration of the anesthesia that was wiped out. Um, can you comment on that? What was going on? Is that just me, or is that part of? Well, the- our retrograde amnesia was probably uh, from a drug like Versed, which is a Valium-like drug, a benzodiazepine, which causes amnesia. And uh, it's it's from the time you give it, but it, it, there does seem to be some kind of backward, backward uh, erasure of, of uh, awareness going back. So that's probably the first set. And when you were a kid, uh, you you may not have had an IV, and you may so you may not have gotten a- anything until maybe you breathed the mask. And when I was a kid, and I had I had my tonsils out, I had ether, uh, and I still to this day remember the viv- vivid visual dreaming or hallucination or whatever of going under ether anesthesia. People say the same thing. It's kind of this gentle whirlpool and, and very kind of psychedelic. And, and, uh, and that's because you don't get anything beforehand. So you wouldn't get any versus you didn't have an IV. And, and now that I'm an anesthesia anesthesiologist, I know what happens is you, you breathe for kids. You don't want to stick them and poke them for IV. So you breathe them down and then you get the IV and then you give them whatever other drugs you need. Yeah. Uh, muscle relaxants and painkillers and whatnot, but you don't have an IV, so with a kid, you're often breathing them down. You have to. And then there's this relatively new anesthesia, propofol. Yeah. Which uh, I had some eye surgery and was aware throughout the surgery, which was absolutely fascinating uh, to be aware in this. Oh, uh, I felt my. Consciousness was very crisp and alert, didn't feel foggy or dreamy. But of course, here he is, uh, you know, operating inside my eyeball and uh, no feeling or sensation. And yet awareness is, I was conscious through the whole thing. I inquired about buying a gallon or two afterward, actually. (laughs) No take home. No. (laughs) Actually, uh, wait, wait. So probably they numbed up your eye uh, with a block, topical, uh, either on the surface or a block behind the eye. Maybe they, while they gave you propofol, they jabbed you behind the eye. Uh, so your eye was numb, and then they gave you the propofol is dose-dependent. If you give enough of it, it puts you out entirely. But there's a big sweet spot where you can be in a, in a twilight zone where you, uh, you're mildly euphoric and, and crisply conscious and feel wonderful. Uh, and are quite happy to lay there uh, while they work on your eye, which is numb anyway. Anyway, so that's called a sedation with propofol. But if you give more, you're out entirely, and if you give more, you stop breathing, and we have to breathe for you and that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, I remember at one point the anesthesiologist, at least I presume that's who it was, uh, grabbed my big toe just to see if I would respond verbally. And indeed, yeah, I'm here, you know. Uh, what a fascinating uh, drug. So new uh, 
anesthetics are being discovered all the time, I presume. Uh, not so much. The ones we have, the gases in particular, work work quite well. I don't know if any new ones are coming out because they're enormously expensive to develop and test and whatnot. And uh, the two that we have now, Sivo, that we mainly use sevoflurane and dustfluorane, were both developed about 25 years ago. And uh, my chairman actually is the one who introduced uh, at the University of Arizona, Brunel Brown, introduced sevoflurane to clinical practice in the United States. Um, so I don't know uh, if there are any uh, new gases coming out, but you know, there's new propofol derivatives. Uh, ketamine is is making a big comeback. Uh, you know, we've always used ketamine in certain situations, and now it's being used therapeutically um, in in psychiatry, for example. And uh, yeah. I, I should also say that one of the big topics at the conference is uh, the use of psychedelics uh, therapeutically for depression, for for various things. One of our keynote speakers at the conference, Robin Carhart-Harris, is the new director of psychedelic research at UCSF. And he's been to our conference numerous times and has given some really amazing uh, uh, talks about his work on figuring out the mechanism of action of, of what the psychedelics actually do. So they're kind of the opposite of anesthesia. I, if you find that, you know, we're looking for a model system that is dampened by anesthesia and increased by psychedelics, you know, the, the lowest common denominator. That might be the, the closest we get to uh, figuring out consciousness. I read an article not long ago that this idea of microdosing with psychedelics as therapy uh, may be more placebic. Can I use the word as an adjective? Is there? I know it's me. I don't know if it's proper. <laughs> that the effect may be more about expectation than the actual microdose itself. Do you have an opinion on that? Uh, no, I, I don't. But I do have an opinion on how uh, I'm, I, I know those particular studies. I, I don't. I don't know the, the data. But I do have an opinion on, on psychedelics because, as I said, anesthesia and psychedelics are the, the key to figuring out consciousness. Find the system or a system or the system stamped by anesthetics and enhanced by psychedelics. Uh, we're getting close to the origin of consciousness, which I think uh, – See, see, most people think that assume that these drugs, the anesthetics and, and or the psychedelics, bind to membrane receptors, receptors on in the membrane on the surface of the cell. But these drugs also go inside the cell into the into the neuron and bind to the microtubules. And we're finding more and more evidence that anesthetics actually act by dampening quantum vibrations in microtubules. Now, most of the work in the literature will say that they act on membrane receptors, GABA receptors, and whatnot. But and they, and they may well bind there, but that doesn't mean that's where they act. And similarly, I think in, uh, the psychedelics may get into the cell and increase the quantum vibrations in the microtubules, which would cause the psychedelic state. So we're going to try to, to test that uh, hypothesis pretty soon, I hope. So about the research in psychedelics, uh, street drugs are so bad that uh, different from the 60s when... LSD was actually coming from Sandoz, and the government had, they didn't know the difference between micrograms and milligrams, apparently, and they ordered way too much and started giving away to university researchers and even the military, and I think that accounts for the availability of really laboratory-quality LSD in the 60s. Um, today... That's not available on the street. Lord knows what's in 
street drugs anymore. But uh, for the purposes of this research, is there laboratory quality, good quality LSD and psilocybin and mescaline and these other drugs uh, that we think of as recreational available to legitimate researchers? Yeah, we, we don't do that kind of work at Arizona, but uh, my friend George Mishore, the other anesthesia guy uh, at the University of Michigan, they have a, a lab and, and do that. Robin Carhart-Harris at UCSF. Johns Hopkins has done some great work uh, in that. So these centers tend to uh, work with the government and get, get that kind of uh, uh, supply. Um, but on the other hand, there's a lot of uh, uh, studies, including at the University of Arizona, on psilocybin. Uh, for uh, for depression, for example, and post-traumatic stress syndrome, that sort of thing. So that must be more available. Um, but, uh, you know, one interesting study that Carhart Harris presented at our conference in 2012, this is, uh, he took uh, volunteers, uh, put them in an MRI scanner with an IV and gave them intravenous psilocybin, psilocin. So the active ingredient in magic mushrooms uh, while they were in an MRI scanner with their eyes closed and not talking. And they reported later what their experience was. And they indeed were having a psychedelic trip with all kinds of hallucinations with their, their eyes closed while their brains were being scanned and uh, with fMRI. And the researchers and everybody expected their brains to light up like a pinball machine when they were having all these vivid hallucinations, but were shocked to see that the uh, fMRI was cold and dark, as if the brain the brain was hypoactive. It was not active at all. It was metabolically inert. It was like uh, even less so than sleeping. And uh, this this finding is still being debated in the consciousness world because what what I would say is happening is that under those circumstances, without interacting, so the subject not even having to talk, just laying there with their eyes closed, consciousness has gone to a deeper quantum level which doesn't require cognition. You're not driving a car. You're not doing anything that requires your membranes to be active. But consciousness is more pure at a deeper state in the in the microtubule uh, quantum states themselves. And then from there, according to Penrose, it goes to the structure of the universe. So your, your membranes are for cognition or for interacting with the outside world. And if you don't have to interact, if you're just laying there uh, appreciating the effects of psilocybin, uh, having a wonderful time, uh, your membranes can be on uh, snoozing. So uh, that uh, other people have different interpretation of that, but it's the kind of thing that keeps people uh, fascinated by this field because it, it, that was an unexpected finding. <laughs> an MRI and a psychedelic, as if the MRI alone is not frightening enough. Uh, right. Uh, well, just as uh, an anesthesia seems to shut down awareness, the psychedelic seems to open it. Um, what about the idea that perhaps the brain filters awareness or focuses awareness and the psychedelic sort of uh, uh, opens that filter, so to speak, such that there's a an increased flow of awareness coming into you at least it feels that way how would you relate to that yeah coming into you and coming out of you because it's a two-way street and uh i i think uh you know i think the problem in understanding the brain is that it is to think of it as a 
computer and as comp- consciousness as a computation. I don't think that's right. And and that that approach stems from the idea of each neuron firing or not firing being a fundamental bit or unit. And yet, as you pointed out, the paramecium, the slime mold are one cells, so they should be in principle be one bit or one unit. And yet they're doing all this incredibly uh, complex and interesting cognitive stuff. So you have to look inside, as we've been talking to the microtubules, and and uh, if you look at the quantum vibrations in the microtubules, uh, you see that they have quantum resonances every three orders of magnitude, going all the way down into terahertz in the range of visible light. So terahertz is, bear with me for a second here, 10 to the 12th hertz, and then uh, gigahertz is like microwaves, 10 to the 9th, megahertz like FM radio, like you're on, we're on right now, in uh, a million hertz, and kilohertz, a thousand hertz, and then hertz, you're in EEG range. So most people looking at the brain look go down in scale to get to uh, uh, individual neurons and EEG, maybe a hundred hertz, a couple hundred hertz. But it turns out that inside neurons, there are all these faster vibrations that are also self-similar. They, they repeat every three orders of magnitude going all the way down into the visible. So it's kind of like an orchestra more than a computer where you have high frequency instruments resonating and interfering with, with lower frequencies and, and bass and that sort of thing. So I think the brain is more like a quantum orchestra than a, than a computer, uh, except that you don't need a conductor. It's, it's a self-organizing uh, uh, resonance and interference system, which gives you beats and resonances and harmonies over, over many, many scales, 15 orders of magnitude within the brain. And then, according to Penrose, another uh, 30 orders of magnitude down to the fine-scale structure of the universe. Because one of the upshots of his theory is that our brain function through quantum computations of microtubules is connected to the fine-scale structure of the universe. And, and somehow we're all connected in space and time. Well, that's a fascinating way of looking at it. Uh, there is this uh, string theory about the universe, I mean, energy is a vibration. It has amplitude and frequency, and um, you've just described uh, the spectrum from brain waves, which is like, you know, 1 to 40 hertz, uh, up through these radio waves. You say to visible light, there are frequencies being produced in the brain at that high, high level? Strange as it seems, yes. Now, this has been known for a long time, but it was thought to be kind of uh, a byproduct photons from chemical reactions. But there's more and more evidence that there's organized quantum optical effects going on in the microtubules and in other structures, including including membranes. And uh, this phenomenon called superradiance, for example, which is a, and subradiance, which is, which is a quantum effect. And, uh, and it's looking like these or, uh, quantum optical effects may be organized and necessary for consciousness, and in fact, some of the experiments that we're, we're doing through the Templeton uh, research program uh, seems to be showing that the quantum effects in microtubules that are inhibited by anesthesia. So we find them and then we add an anesthetic and it goes away. And we also want to look at psychedelics and see if it uh, goes the other way and increases the vibrations. But yeah, that's what it's looking like uh, photons in, in the brain and it's you know, going back thousands of years of, of light as a metaphor for consciousness, uh, halos and auras and all that, that it, there may be something to that. 
So we'll see where that goes in the next couple couple of years. That's really a beautiful concept in a world that is so obsessed with physical uh, and the appearance of things uh, to consider that there's a song behind it all, a melody, a harmony, a, a rhythm. It's all uh, sound and light. Yeah. Multidimensional uh, spatial temporal hierarchy and rhythm. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's really beautiful. Uh, we could go hours, but uh, then again, we really can't. Uh, <laughs> how can people find out more about your conference and if not attend in person? Uh, you can attend in person or online. Uh, yeah. the, the website, www.consciousness.arizona.edu. And that's our Center for Consciousness Studies website. If you go there, you'll see the conference lineup. It's an amazing lineup. We have four keynote speakers, uh, Christoph Koch on uh, the Brain and, and Consciousness Day, uh, and then uh, Robin Carhart-Harris, whom I mentioned uh, on psychedelics. Uh, that whole day is on psychedelics. Then uh, uh, we have uh, Avi Loeb talking about uh, extraterrestrial consciousness and a talk uh, by my friend Dante Loretta on his project to bring back organic, organic molecules from uh, an asteroid to look for life and consciousness. And then the, the, the last day keynote is David Chalmers, who's very famous now, and on his new book, Reality Plus, on whether this our existence is a simulation, which I don't think so. But uh, And Dave thinks maybe 25%, but it's a fascinating area. And then the final, the final uh, session will be on quantum neuroscience, uh, uh, organized by my friend uh, Hartman Nevin at Google. And uh, Google is now getting, they've gotten into quantum computing and are now uh, getting very interested in quantum biology. And uh, we had a, a conference there uh, a few months ago. So, uh, and then there's uh, social events and uh, talk by an ayahuasca shaman and uh, a debate between uh, Sue Blackmore and Deepak Chopra and uh, a bunch of other very interesting stuff, including poetry slam and zombie blues performance. <laughs> That's just too cool. Uh you know, I want to thank you on behalf of uh, more people than either of us know just for bringing to academia uh, this field. When I was in school, the idea of studying consciousness, if I had gone to, uh, you know, the course catalog or the dean or whomever, they would not have had any idea what I was even talking about. And now... Schools like University of Arizona, the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, I think UCLA has a consciousness studies department or a mindfulness center, don't they? Uh, I'm not sure, but uh, I want to thank our, our sponsor, Eugene Jong, who is funding our educational program at the University of Arizona. Well, certainly you've been at the forefront and... Uh, uh, you're largely responsible for that. And I, I just think it's fascinating work, and I really appreciate the work that you and your colleagues are doing. And I understand you hope in the near future to have degree programs available for students who want to major in consciousness studies, right? Yes. Uh, our first goal would be an undergraduate minor. This is being organized by... Uh, uh, the Center for Conscious Studies co-director, uh, Tom Bever, who set up these courses. I'm going to be giving a, a course in the next year. Uh, so far, I've given uh, some classes in Tom's 
comms course, and uh, we hope to develop it into a uh, an undergraduate thing, graduate program. I get so many emails and letters from people who want to you know come study and just don't have the time. I mean, I've been working in the operating room most of my you know almost full time, and uh, I'm retiring from that. So hope to spend a couple of years just. Uh, uh, directing the Center for Consciousness Studies and, and doing more research and trying to get to the bottom of all this. Wonderful. Would you give that website one more time? www.consciousness.arizona.edu. Consciousness is hard to spell. C-O-N-S-C-I-O-U-S-E-S-S. Dr. Stuart Amaroff from University of Arizona in beautiful Tucson, and uh, Dr. Stewart, thank you so much for being with us today. I know you're a busy fellow, and I really, really appreciate it. Let's stay in touch. I would. Yeah, you should uh, come to the conference. I, 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 you know, I plan to do my best. If I can't actually be there, which I'd prefer, yeah, uh, I'll be online. Okay, good. Well, thank you, Mike. Great questions. Appreciate it. Uh, thanks again. Let's stay in touch, and maybe down the uh, calendar we can do another one of these programs. Sounds great. Thank you. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK in Los Angeles. I want to thank my producer, Mark Brisky. Suggest you stay tuned for Gary Harrison, and uh, you'll find this program streaming at its homepage, theagelesswisdom.com. The T-H-E is part of it, theagelesswisdom.com. And we're also podcast as the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School and have our own YouTube channel as well. Thanks for listening. Join us next week. As always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From Los Angeles, this is Michael Bender.